In looking at verse 25 and following, <clears throat> the first thing that I would call to your attention is the scope of our discipleship. As we talk about dedicated discipleship, we think about being called to discipleship. And interestingly, in looking at Luke 14 and verse 25, we read of great multitudes that were following the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a great example to follow. And so many were following him at that time. And so there went great multitudes with him. And he turned and he said unto them, What comes to my mind has to do with their interest in him. That is, their interest in Jesus the Christ. Over and over again, when we look at the Scriptures, you'll find that there are a number of individuals that had a great or a genuine interest in the Lord. Now, there were some who were classified as His enemies, and they had their motive to ensnare Him in His speech from time to time. But there were some who were genuinely interested in what Jesus had to say. And so as a result of that, it's not uncommon to read of great multitudes that were following him from place to place. And certainly this was one of those cases, wasn't it? I'm reminded of the account that we find in John 12 and verse 21, where it was said of the Greeks, Sir, we would see Jesus. Why do you think that these people wanted to see Jesus? Why do you think that these multitudes were following the Son of God? I think no doubt that it was because of the powerful words that he has spoken long before they started following him and even after they continued to follow him. It was the Apostle Peter in John chapter 6 when Jesus had earlier declared himself to be the bread of life that the Bible tells us that many of his disciples went back and they walked no more with him. Verse 66. It's interesting that Jesus then asked this question to his disciples in verse 67. Will ye also go away. Then Simon Peter answered to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Obviously, there was something special about the words that were spoken by Jesus that attracted people. And I think that this was the case on many occasions. But I also think about the great works that he performed. We talk about the signs or the miracles that Jesus performed on a number of occasions. And you can find, for example, even in the book of John, that there were seven signs recorded that points to Jesus as being deity. This simply underscores the fact that he was and is the very son of the living God. And so we think about the interest that the people had in Jesus. But then I also want you to think with me about the invitation that he had given to them. Now in verse 26, Jesus said, If any man come to me, 
There's the invitation. We talk about the scope of discipleship, the call to become a a disciple of Jesus, a follower. Jesus wanted followers. He was interested in people. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those gospel accounts, and you will see over and over again, Jesus encouraging people to follow him. In Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, the Bible teaches us that God desires all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2, 4. Or that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all will come to repentance, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. And so we talk about their interest in him, and then we talk about his invitation to them. Just before Jesus had ascended to heaven, as recorded in Matthew 28, 19, you might remember what the Lord said to his disciples. Go ye, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Isn't that wonderful? Go ye, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We talk about the scope of discipleship and how it's open to all. There are no exclusions when it comes to the very body of Christ. The Lord is interested in all people. You remember in Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3, when he foretold of the coming of the kingdom of God? He saw it in an exalted mountain, and he said that into this great institution would all nations flow unto it. The idea that Isaiah was setting forth, the kingdom of God, would encompass both Jews and Gentiles together. It would house all nations of people. And Jesus, as you know, died on Calvary's cross and his death reconciled both Jew and Gentile into one body, the church of our Lord. And so the scope of discipleship. There is a call to discipleship. Jesus is interested in followers. And in looking at our text, we see that there were some who were genuinely interested, if you will, in the Lord and then his invitation to them. Now, there's going to be some prerequisites, some conditions, if you will, that are attached to discipleship. But let's notice the second place of the sacrifices of discipleship. What is it going to cost me to become a follower, a disciple of Jesus the Christ? I think sometimes people have the idea that they can be a follower of Jesus and they can just decide how they want to follow him. Isn't that interesting? They think that, that their rules and their ways are just as right as what the Lord has told us. But that's not true, is it? They want to set their own rules and their own pace in life. But that's not what the Lord had said. Because you see, Jesus said that there are some conditions that are associated with coming in becoming a follower of His. 
And so the question is asked, what is it going to cost you? What is it going to cost me to be a follower of Jesus? Now, to those in the first century, most people who were following the Lord, these great multitudes that were interested in thinking about becoming a disciple, here's what Jesus said. If you want to be a disciple of mine, if you want to be a follower of mine, then here's what you need to understand. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. And then somebody says, well, what is it going to cost me? Number one, it's going to cost you potentially your family. Look at what Jesus said in verse 26. He says, if any man come unto me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life, also he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So first of all, we think about our family. How much does your family mean to you? How much does your family mean to you? Well, for most of us, family is everything, isn't it? That's blood. Family means a lot. Now, there are some people that because of their decision to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ have been ostracized by their family, all because they had obeyed the gospel, all because they are now a follower of the Lord a disciple of Christ, all because they're a member of the church of Christ, they will have nothing to do with you anymore. Now that may sound harsh, doesn't it? And it may be hard to believe. But I can assure you that there are any number of people that have found themselves in that particular position. Jesus is not saying here, that we are not to love our family. At one time I preached this in a similar way, but I, I quoted that verse. And I had a family that said, if that's what you want us to do, we can't do that. And we haven't seen them back. All because of a misunderstanding. Jesus is not saying that you're not to love your family. He's not saying that. To the contrary, we are to love our family. Over and over again, we read about how the husband is to love the wife. And how that we are to love our children, of course. We understand how important the family union is, but Jesus is saying, if you have to make a choice, if you have to decide between me and your family, and you want to be a disciple of mine, then you need to choose me. You have to go with me. You're going to have to love me above everyone else. You have to love me preeminently. Let me just add this. We talk about the cost of discipleship, the sacrifices. There are some people that have literally and had family relationships severed because of their decision to obey the gospel. 
I can think of a few people that have been ostracized because of that decision. But we talk about our family relationships. But Jesus also includes ourselves in this context. Jesus said we had to be willing to even deny ourselves if we're going to become one of his disciples in verse 27. And by that I mean that our wishes have to take back seat to the Lord's. His will is preeminent. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16 and verse 24 when he said that if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So what is it going to cost you? Well, it may cost you your family. But then there's a second thing that it may cost you. And it may cost you the faith of your family. Somebody might ask, well, what do you mean the faith of your family? Well, you see, many people have grown up in a particular denomination. And maybe they have studied the Bible. Maybe they have spent some time studying the scriptures. And then when it comes time to obey the gospel, they may be somewhat reluctant to to do so. All because their mom or dad, their grandmother or grandfather, somebody in their family unit had become a member of a particular denomination for so long. Let me give you an example of somebody who had obeyed the gospel despite the faith of his family. His name is Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, he's right there in your Bible. When you read in Philippians 3, verses 1 and following, the Bible talks about the pedigree of the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. It says in verse 5 there that he was of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew, of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee. He had been schooled at the very feet of Gamaliel. Some would even say that if he were alive today, he would be referred to as Dr. Saul. He'd probably say, you don't have to give me a title. There's no need for that. But that's how well known he was in the community, how well known he was of the scriptures. He could have been referred to as Dr. Saul. Here was a man that had been schooled and steeped in Judaism. Now, where do you think Saul of Tarsus learned about Judaism? Where do you think he learned about the very law of God? He learned it from his family. You go back and you read in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 7, God had said through Moses that the parents were to teach their children diligently. You can underline that word. Diligently, the law of God. And so when Saul of Tarsus was instructed by Ananias to arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, don't think He thought about his family members, his mama and his daddy. Don't you think that he thought about those earthly relationships that had been so near and dear to his heart? In all probability, he went back to those very thoughts. But he did not let that hinder him in doing what God 
had asked him to do. And so we talk about the cost of discipleship. It may be the case that we have to turn our back on the faith of our family. I remember a preacher friend studying with a lady and through the course of their study they talked about New Testament Christianity and when it came time for her to either obey the gospel or not her response to this friend of mine said I made a deathbed promise to my mother that I would never become a member of the church of Christ you see that's what Jesus is talking about there Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to make some hard decisions in life. You might have to go back on that promise that you made to your mama and your daddy. Some of those decisions are going to relate to your family. Some of those decisions are going to relate to the faith of your family. But then there's a third thing as well. It may cost you some friends. Did you know that there are a number of members in the church today that they have had to sever their relationships with their friends? All because they decided to become a New Testament Christian. When you obey the gospel, when you make that decision to become a child of God, that old way of life is over. It's called repentance. I think about the story that was told about John Shannon, a great gospel preacher today. When he obeyed the gospel, some of his friends wanted him to go out drinking alcohol. And he told them specifically, he says, that old John Shannon that you knew is dead and gone. I'm the new John Shannon, and John Shannon doesn't do that anymore. And thus he did not go. He had to change his ways, repented his old way of life. He had to change his friends. You see, that happens when you become a Christian. You die to the love and the practice of sin. Is that not what Paul teaches in Romans 6 and verse 3? When he says, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised from the dead to walk in newness of, that we also shall walk in newness of life as well. We died in the practice of sin. We're buried in that watery grave and we rise to walk in newness of life. You might have to change friends. Now Amos asked in Amos 3.3, can two walk together unless they are agreed? Paul said, be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. 1 Corinthians 15.33. Why would you want to run with the devil's crowd? You're a child of God now. Why would you want to associate with people that, that drink alcohol and do drugs and cuss and do all kinds of things that are contrary to the very will of God? And so it may mean that you'll have to sever some of those 
relationship. But then also I would suggest that it might cost you your fortune. An example of what I'm talking about is in Luke 18, 18. When we read about a young ruler who came to Jesus and he asked, Good Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, to call Jesus good will be in a sense to equate him with God because that term or title was used to designate deity. Now, Jesus responded by saying this in verse 19. He said, why callest thou me good? None is good save one that is God. Jesus goes on to say in verse 20, Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, And all these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, He says, Yet you lackest but one thing. Sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, what does Luke tell us happened after Jesus made this declaration to this young ruler? Was this man religious? Yes, indeed. Had he honored the law of God? Yes, he had, or at least he said he had. But there was one command that was left out, and that was do not covet. Do not covet. That commandment was not explicitly stated here in Luke 18. And so apparently the Lord knew that covetousness was a problem in the life of this young man. He was told to go sell all that he had and to distribute it to the poor and come follow him and you will have treasure in heaven. And the Bible tells us in verse 23, and when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Is there anything inherently wrong with money itself? No. There is not. Is there anything wrong with having material goods? No. It is not. Nothing wrong with money, nothing wrong with materialism insofar as I use those things as a good steward. But if I allow those things to become a God, an idol to me, then there is a problem. Just like this young man here in Luke 18. And so it may cost you. It may cost you some money. It may mean you have to walk away from some things. It may mean that you have a lucrative and high-paying job. And that job is coming between him or her and their family or between him and her and God. Let me tell you, you're going to have to make some decisions. They're going to be tough. But if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be his disciple, if you want to be a follower of our Lord, then you're going to have to make 
some decisions. They may mean leaving some money on the table, but to serve God and to live for God, are you willing to do that? That's what it may cost you. And then finally, let me suggest that it may cost you your faults. Your faults. In Psalm 19, verse 12, the psalmist talks about being cleansed from his secret thoughts. All of us has faults. All of us have shortcomings. But I think about the things that we do habitually. And what Jesus is saying here is that the old way of sin, that old lifestyle, has to be given up. And probably the best illustration that I could find is in the book of Ephesians 4 and verse 28, where Paul said, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Are you a thief? Well, if you are a thief then you're going to have to give up that way of life, right? Paul said in verse 25, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his own neighbor. Are you a liar? If you are, then you're going to have to give up that old life. Paul said in verse 29, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. It may minister grace unto the hearers. Do you cuss? I know that's an old term, isn't it? Do you use cuss words? Foul language, I guess you would say. I don't know what else they might say. But you're going to have to give that up. What we are talking about is giving up those things that would come between you and your Lord. Between you and God. And so, the sacrifices of discipleship. But then thirdly, the seriousness of discipleship. Now, what Jesus is going to do here is to set for us some considerations here. He's going to use a couple of examples, and we have two pictures of discipleship. The first has to do with the builder, and the second has to do with the battle. So, let's notice what Jesus said. Look at verse 28 of our text. Of Luke 14. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he had sufficient to finish it, lest haply after he had laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build but was not able to finish. If you're going to build a house, what is the first thing? that you're going to do. You're going to make sure that you've got enough money. You're going to make sure you've got enough money to see that project through to its completion. Now, are there some things that might come up along the way that might cost you a little bit more? Well, hopefully you budgeted for that too, right? It always happens. But that's what Jesus is saying here about discipleship. He's saying if you want to be a follower of mine, then you better count the cost. You better sit down and you need to make sure that you're willing to give everything to follow me. The second example is the battle. We think about the worker and the warrior. Look at verse 31. 
or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000 or else while the other is yet a great way off he sendeth an ambassage and desired conditions of peace. And so here is a warrior. And he's thinking about going to battle. Going to war against another country. What's he going to do? What, what, he's going to sit down. He's going to make sure that he has the right military resources. Although maybe limited. That he can go up against someone who has far greater resources. What's the point here? What Jesus is saying here is that before you wade out into Christianity, you need to better count the cost. You better see what you're getting into because this is a lifetime commitment. A lifetime commitment. That's what, that's, that's what we need to understand. But then there's also the pathway to discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? How can I get on the road to becoming a disciple of Jesus? Well, number one, it entails a converted life. I said a moment ago that before you become a Christian, before you and I make the decision to become a child of God, we had to count the cost. We had to realize what all of this is about. Think about somebody who goes down to one of the recruiting offices of the military. And the person says, you know, I, I, I want to become a Marine. I, I want to become a part of the Air Force, the Navy, or the Army. And before you sign on that dotted line, you better make sure you understand. You better make sure you understand what you're signing on to. Because once you sign on that dotted line, you no longer belong to yourself. You belong to the government. And if you don't like being told what to do, you sign on the wrong dotted line. Because now they own you. They own you. Now, what Jesus is saying here, that before you sign on the service and the kingdom of God, you better understand what you're getting yourself into. It is a lifetime of service. And what the Lord wants is for us to immerse ourselves in his service to consume ourselves how does this all begin well number one it begins with a converted life doesn't it you can't be a disciple of jesus and just live as you please you've got to be converted to the cause of christ when the apostle peter preached on pentecost day there in acts chapter 2 to the multitudes of people the bible says in verse 37 that those people were pricked in their hearts and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. 
What does repentance imply? It implies, it implies a change. It's a part of that conversion process. And so he said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. You know, when Saul of Tarsus was instructed by Ananias to arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, Acts twenty two sixteen, that implied repentance. He had to be converted before he could ever be a soldier in the army of God. He had to become converted and that's what it takes today. So first of all, it entails a converted life, but then number two, it entails a consecrated life. A consecrated life. I talked about that before you and I, and I signed on to service. We need to understand what we're signing on to. It's a life of service. It's a lifetime of service. It's not start today, stop tomorrow, start the next day, stop the next day. No, it's start today and you have to see it through its completion. Now here's what was said of those early disciples in Acts 2 and verse 42. And they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in the breaking of bread in our prayers. What did they do? They continued steadfastly. It wasn't just a one time here and a one time there. Well, well, no. They were consecrated to the cause of Christ. Do you know why sometimes people become unfaithful to the cause of Christ? Do you know why some people when things were normal and they were they, they would not be at worship services. I'm talking about before this pandemic. But then maybe you'll see him the next, or her the next Sunday morning, or maybe in a couple of Sundays, and then they will not be back for another couple of weeks. Why is that? They lack commitment. They lack consecration to Almighty God. We're talking about being consecrated to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. To give him our all. We sing the song, all to Jesus I surrender. I surrender all. That's right. Have you truly surrendered all to Jesus? Are we truly consecrated to his cause? Now if we are. If we are converted to Christ and we are consecrated to Christ, then we'll receive a crown from Christ, won't we? Because there is a converted life, the consecrated life, and the crown of life. How, how do I know? How do I know that I will one day receive a crown of life? Because James in James 1 in verse 12 said, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. What is it that is before all of us here? It's the crown of life. It's the crown of life. Why be a disciple of Jesus? Because of the crown of life. Because of the hope of heaven, isn't it? If we were to take a poll right there this morning, who oh, all want to go to heaven, I, don't, I think everybody would raise their hands. 
because of what looms before us, to know that we have the hope of life eternal. Now let me just close by asking this question. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, why not? There's a difference in lip service and really and truly genuinely serving the Lord day in and day out. But what about you today? If you're watching online, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you've never become a disciple of Jesus. And maybe with this sermon, maybe you realize you need to do something about that. Here's what you need to do. You need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son, the living God. And upon that belief, you need to make that changes that we talked about earlier in the sermon. Putting away the, the old man of life and putting on the new man. By doing that in your confession and being baptized in that watery grave. When you come up out of that water, you'll have the newness of life. And you can say to your friends and your family, <laughs> that old Charles is gone. I'm the new Charles. Good to meet you. Because I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a disciple of Christ. And we hope that you'll make that decision even this morning. But then there's another step, too, that many of us as New Testament Christians understand is that we have to live faithfully. We have to continue. It's not a one-time action. We have to continue faithfully living for God in Christ in our lives, day in and day out. And if you have not been doing that, we hope and pray that you'll make a decision to repent of those sins if that sin is in your life and to pray that God will forgive you. And we'll pray with you and for you as well.